Hello, and welcome to the University of California Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Joshua Bloom, the co-author, along with Waldo E. Martin Jr., Black Against Empire, the history and the politics of the Black Panther Party. Joshua Bloom is a fellow at the Ralph J. Bunch Center at UCLA. He is the co-editor of Working for Justice, the L.A. model of organizing and advocacy, and the collection editor of the Black Panther newspaper collection. Joshua Bloom, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the University of California Press Podcast today. My pleasure, Chris. You know, given the inequalities and racism African Americans faced all through the country, I found it interesting that the Black Panthers started in Oakland. Was there something particular about Oakland that created the conditions for the Black Panther movement? Well, it's interesting. That's a good question. Um, There are a series of things that were um, special about Oakland that really helped to give birth to the Black Panther Party and the Black Panther movement. One of the things that was um, really um, crucial was that there was a strong industrial base, um, and especially the port that attracted a lot of um, black migration during the war and um, in the period leading up to the 60s. And what has happened is that by by the 60s, um, a lot of that industry and a lot of the jobs had moved to the suburbs as had um, a lot of um, whites. And so you had the, the creation of a black uh, ghetto, basically. And the municipality responded with a containment policing strategy. Basically, we're going to keep this poverty contained and the crime associated with it and really come down hard. At the same time, you had uh, the development of some independent black political strengths um, in Oakland and uh, a range of cities throughout the country, and also um, the generation of um, pretty strong resistance um, to the war. So what, what, in a sense, what made Oakland such a, a key uh, training ground and cradle for the Black Panther Party was these factors that at this moment in the mid to late 60s were pretty widespread. And um, Oakland was the place where these practices came together. Once they did, the party really spread like wildfire. So could you talk about how the violent deaths of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. affected the development of the Black Panther Party? I got a sense that these were two watershed moments, but for very different reasons. Yes, absolutely. So you need to remember that uh, Malcolm X was killed in 1965, um, almost well over a year before the Black Panther Party um, that we all have heard of was actually founded in in Oakland at the end of 1966. Malcolm X was interestingly not so influential in, in life. Really, in his death, he became a martyr. And so those ferments of young people saying, how do we build black power? How do we build political power? How do we build economic power for black communities outside of you know, the South, but in, in really the cities, and in the South, in the cities as well? How do we build um, power for our communities? Malcolm X became a real symbol of um, that black power ferment, was taken up pretty widely by a whole range of uh, political approaches. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and Eldridge Cleaver and um, Elaine Brown and, you know, all the folks in the Black Panther that, that emerged later as leaders of the Black Panther Party who really looked to Malcolm X at that moment and saw him as a symbol. And Malcolm X had actually um, been brought to the Bay Area by a group of um, young radical black organizers associated with the University of California. Um, 
in the years um, right, you know, in '65, right before his death, and and just a couple years before um, the Black Panther Party was uh, founded in in Oakland. He, so he was really symbol of the stance of defiance and of um, the nationalist call that take care of the black community and to be steward of the black community and um, the, the, the call that the black community really needs to represent itself as part of a challenge to American imperialism more broadly. Martin Luther King was a very different kind of symbol and his death um, played a very different role in the development of the party. The party already existed in some ways. Martin Luther King had come towards the position of uh, not only Malcolm X, but the Black Panther Party and other young black activists who were calling for economic power, political power. And Martin Luther King had gone um, well beyond um, the discussion of Jim Crow and segregation. And, and some some argue that all along he really had this broader vision. But you have to remember that the civil rights movement up really through its peak in in the the early 60s into 65 and then by 66 it's really starting to decline is is organized around a nonviolent challenge to Jim Crow and formal caste subordination and he always remained nonviolent but once Jim Crow was defeated he had turned to try to talk about other problems like poverty when he was killed I, I think that a lot of the people who had held out and sort of hoped that the nonviolent approach to addressing black poverty, to addressing ghettoization, to addressing police brutality might work. I think that he was sort of the last hope. And the young folks who really were struggling to try to advance black community interests beyond the challenge to, to formal legal caste, you know, subordination and inequality and Jim Crow, a lot of them turn towards other models. And um, uh, uh, probably the main place that they turned was uh, in, in 1968 um, when he was killed was the Black Panther Party. And so all that growth that I mentioned earlier from, from early 68 through the end of 68 to 69 and 70, um, the, the big growth really comes on the heels of the, the assassination of Martin Luther King. Now, you are the collection editor of the Black Panther newspaper collection at UCLA, and it's used quite extensively in this book. What's important for us to know about this collection? Well, it's just such a wonderful resource. I mean, here's a rank-and-file members from all over the country writing their personal perspectives in their own voice about the conditions that they're facing daily and their struggles. And you have local leaders from around the country talking about their programs and aims and very sophisticated um, theoretical um, discussions and debates on everything from gender to race and class and how to build a movement and participants from all different allied movements. So you have to remember that really the the strength of the Black Panther Party was in many ways um, its, its ability to situate the struggle of the black community as part of a much broader global struggle against imperialism and draw very strong support from the anti-war movement in the United States, um, strong relations with some parts of the women's movement, um, Chicano movements, um, Asian American, um, there were a whole number of Asian American groups that, you know, both worked with and emulated the party and all kinds of international groups, um, from the, the North Vietnamese, um, offering to exchange 
the release of POWs for uh, the release of Bobby Seale and Huey Newton from prison to the premier of China uh, meeting with Huey Newton and holding a national celebration with tens of thousands of people celebrating in the streets, denouncing American imperialism and you know honoring Huey Newton um, as a as a partner in this shared struggle. Um, the Black Panther newspaper featured all of these voices um, speaking about these events in their own terms and from their own perspective. And so it's really just the richest um, document, both on the party and in many ways on the Times. So J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI during this time, was obviously willing to put a lot of resources into discrediting the Black Panthers. What do you think unnerved him and the federal government more? The fact that there was a potential for violence with the Black Panthers or the fact that they were successfully working in the African-American community with social programs? Both. It was really the combination of the social programs and the armed self-defense that was so threatening. And there are revisionists who try to say, you know, oh, the party was not all about, you know, guns and it was just about social programs and that was what was important. And that's really not quite true. Um, there were plenty of organizations trying to deliver social programs that were not really on the radar. I think that the, the federal government um, generally and J. Edgar Hoover in particular were very concerned with the level of armed resistance. I mean, these containment policing strategies that really responded to black poverty and, and ghettoization by basically brutal force were being fairly effectively disrupted um, by these organizations of young blacks who are saying, no, we're going we're gonna to have our own governance and we're not going to be pushed around and brutalized by the police. And in fact, we're going to take up arms. And so you, you had some you know, serious armed confrontations um, in cities throughout the country and challenge to police brutality. So I think that the federal government was very concerned about that. But simultaneously, the federal government was very, very concerned about the service programs. And the reason that the federal government was so concerned about these service programs um, was because they were part of this much broader um, legitimacy that the party was building and the support that the party was building from not only young activist blacks, but actually very widespread support against repression from even very moderate black political organizations such as NAACP or even the Urban League. Um, if you look at the, you know, who, who turns out when Fred Hampton is, is killed, the leader of the the, the Chicago Black Panther Party, you know, the Urban League plays a, a key role. And um, and not only that, but all kinds of, of non-blacks um, from, you know, anti-war folks or people who are just concerned about what's happening um, with the draft. And so it's it's really the non, it's, it's the non-radical who, and their support of, of, the, of the Black Panther Party that is, is in part so threatening, because if there's no support, it's easy to repress the party. So finally, what do you think the legacy of the Black Panther Party is for 21st century America? To understand the legacy of the Black Panther Party, you have to look at what their historical effect was. And I think that it was, in fact, quite tremendous. If you think about those changes in black political representation, if you think about changes in municipal hiring where police departments are no longer all white and uh, fire departments are no longer all white in predominantly black cities, if you think about access to higher education, if you think about the creation of a black middle class, um, so in terms of black economic, political, and um, educational access, 
all of those ballooned in exactly the, the period that the Black Panther Party was mobilizing in the years following, in the 70s. And if you also think about military policy and the draft, in, in 1968, the Democratic Party base voted overwhelmingly 80% for anti-war candidates saying, we need to end this draft, we need to end this war. And the party said, too bad for you, we're going to do it anyway, and pushed through the party leadership, pushed through a pro-war platform and a pro-war candidate, and said, you know, the base isn't going to get its way. And I don't argue and I don't believe that, 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 the changes in these policies can be attributed solely to the Black Panther Party, but the Black Panther Party was a key part in its alliances with, um, for example, you know, the, the largest organization that mobilized draft resistance, the, the Students for a Democratic Society in 1969 declared the Black Panther Party the vanguard of the common struggle at the National Convention. There was a big resolution, a big debate, and that's resolution passed declaring the Black Panther Party the, the vanguard of the common struggle. Um, and, you know, the, the party was really at the heart of and had alliances with and was a, an important piece of um, a very widespread challenge and destabilization to authority as constituted in the United States. Not at all the only force, a, but a piece. And if you think about the changes that the society went through, not least of which, you know, the, the that the, the war was ended and the and the draft repealed largely in, in response to popular pressure um, or the creation of affirmative action programs or the changing of municipal hiring policies or the ballooning of black electoral representation or access to universities all of these changes were responses to the to the you know wide, concessions to the widespread um, destabilization of uh, authority um, in the United States in, in these years, and the Black Panther Party was a, an integral part of that movement and um, and those changes. Joshua Bloom, the co-author, along with Waldo E. Martin Jr. of Black Against Empire, The History and Politics of the Black Panther Party. Thanks so much for being on the University of California Press podcast today. Thank you, Chris. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at www.ucpress.edu. Don't forget, you can find the University of California Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash ucpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at ucpress. Thanks for listening to this episode of the University of California Press podcast. Copyright 2012, the University of California Press. All rights reserved.